What up, nerds? Before we start today's show, I wanted to make a few announcements. We have our first patron for the Patreon, which I'm very excited. That is Mary Stevenson, and she is a producer-level patron. So if you ever feel like this podcast is something you want to support and want to move forward, you can just go on, go on over to patreon.com slash power the playbill and you can find that also on my website just go to the support page and there are different tiers that you can sign up for for different values per month uh, ranging from two to ten dollars a month and they will give you access to all sorts of things like my scripts that I write and unedited audio and as it goes up you get more and more things like I'll do a monthly Q&A session with y'all and if you're producer at the end of the podcast I'll be saying your name produced by such and such and it looks really good on a resume because you can say I helped produce this podcast and it looks really impressive in today's society when people are looking for people with technology. But yeah, that's pretty much it, and I hope you all enjoyed today's show. Howdy, and welcome back to Power of the Playbill. For those of you just joining us today, this is your first episode. I'm Braden Hinsulka, and I am the nerd behind the mic talking about Broadway plays and how they impact society and how they've impacted people and organizations and taking a look at the themes and seeing how they're still relevant today. So if this is your first episode, thank you so much for joining us. You could have hit any random podcast. And if you hit this one, it's here you are. And I am very thankful for it. If you're returning, welcome back. Thank you for sticking around after the first episode. We have an exciting second episode today, which will be fun. And you may be wondering, do we have a guest? And yes, we do. So we're going to go ahead and hit it. You know them from their hit ABC show and every single Broadway play out there. It's absolutely nobody. Yeah, we don't have a guest today. So, I mean, I'm still figuring this thing out. A whole new to the podcasting business. So, hit me up, whether it be on the website where you can find my email, powerofthepaybill.wixsite.com slash POTP. You can find my email there. You find all the social media there. You hit me up either on the email or on social media and y'all comment y'all like it with the guest feel free to tell me that if you don't if you like this episode better you can tell me that too and we'll just go from there but anyways today we're diving in to a very fun play that i love phantom of the opera which oh it's good the music like this, the talent that goes into this play is phenomenal, and we have a lot to cover. So we're just going to dive right into it. So this play has been seen by over 140 million people in 35 different countries in 166 cities around the world and has made an 
estimated gross of six billion dollars. Billion with a B. And that's just crazy just to see that one play can get that much money and that many people just to see it. It's insane. It has won over 70 major theater awards, including three Oliver Awards, an Evening Standard Award, seven Tony Awards, including Best Musical, a seven Drama Desk Awards, and five Outer Critics Circle Awards. Phantom opened in 1986 and has gone to be one of the longest-running shows in history with 13,000 shows and counting. That's just insane. 13,000 shows. As an actor, doing a few shows just for the high school productions and everything seems like a lot, and a lot of work goes in it. But the fact that this has been going since 86 and has done 13,000 different shows just says a ton. A 1988 review from the Daily News had proclaimed Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical version of the fable about the masked man who haunts the Paris opera is a longing look back at the stagecraft, a scene of wonder the theater had a century ago. It is spectacular entertainment, visually the most impressive of the British musicals. Perhaps the most old-fashioned thing about it is that it's a love story, something Broadway hadn't seen for quite a while. An ending quote right there. But just the size of this play and how much it's grown over the years is just mind-blowing and I'll probably say that again a lot during this episode but it truly is just phenomenal but we're gonna go and dive into um the story of Phantom of the Opera and I'm probably going to get a lot of these names wrong so don't hate me don't at me or anything just because they're in French and in a lot of other languages. So we're going to we're going to go with it and yeah. The story of Phantom of the Opera was originally published in a series of articles in La Glossus and then in a book in 1911 entitled La Phantom de l'Opera written by a French journalist Gaston Larue. When the story was first published it was not as popular as it was when the book went out into print. LaRue, whose specialty was he was a investigative journalism based kind of a job. Um, he based his story on the true life incidents. So, in fact, many who have researched the subject have come to conclude that with a few exceptions, the story has several elements of truth in it. So the opera house in the story was depicted on the genuine opera Granier in Paris. The opera Granier has an underground passages in it and it also has an underground lake so LaRue utilized this setting in his stories that he told and there was an occurrence where a chandelier actually did fall in that opera house setting the building ablaze and executing a lady uh, LaRue utilizing a falling crystal f- fixture in his story as a diversion so his phantom could capture Christine so that's where that parallel is and then the romance between the Phantom and Christine is the story that is simply a dream, yet it is trusted that LaRue constructed the two characters with respect to actual individuals. So the Phantom is based on a man named Eric, who was born in a little town in Normandy, close to Rouen. 
he was conceived with an awful distorted face, so his parents deserted him when he was eight. And a circus essentially took him up for a long time and utilized utilized him as a fascination. He got away in Persia and filled in as a performer for the Shah. And he later filled in as a building partner, which gave him a more prominent comprehension of architectural knowledge. It's pretty certain that he came back to France. In Paris, he so awed Charles Grenier that he was marked for one of the contractors that worked on the new opera house. He worked 12 hours a day until it was finished, and he no longer was the deformed child that suffered cruelly. He was a gentleman who wore a mask to hide his deformed face, and he also wore a dress suit, a cloak, and a large felt hat. He was respected, and he earned enough money to live a comfortable life. And just like in the story, the real-life Eric had his own personal box number five at the opera house, which he had even a hollow column built next to it where he could come and go without being seen. And Eric did fall in love with the singer who performed at the opera house, but finding himself rejected, he, in a desperate act, kidnapped the singer after evening performance, and she was found three weeks later, and shortly afterwards, she left Paris. After this, a legend was spread that Eric was so heartbroken that he walled up the door to his apartment beneath the opera house and died of starvation. Years later, when the new opera Bastille was built, this small apartment was supposedly discovered by a workman who found a skeleton wearing a gold ring that Eric was supposedly known to wear. And LaRue used this legend about the real Eric as an inspiration for his story. The character Christine was based upon a soprano by the name of Christina Jonas' daughter. It was believed that she was LaRue's inspiration for the character because of her overwhelming similarities between her and, and the character of Christine. Jonas' daughter was taught to play the violin by her older brother at a young age in Sweden. Her family was very poor and she later played this instrument on the streets to earn money. She was sent to Stockholm and then to Paris to continue her lessons. Jonas' daughter's beautiful singing voice, like the character in the story, was discovered by accident. She started to sing at concerts and took the stage name Christina Nielsen, Niel, Christina Nielsen in the 1860s. And according to historians, Nielsen had an incredible vocal range and was very beautiful with a lovely figure and blue eyes. So after researching all this and actually seeing that this was kind of based on a true life event, I kind of want to go in more to it and find and read. I want to read the actual book that it was based on, but I also want to one day, if I'm ever in Europe, actually try to go find and investigate this a little bit more myself to try to see um the actual opera and see if they have a museum and stuff that'd be really cool to see so if you're anyone out there want to hit me up take me to europe so we can go find adventurous things i would love to come along but i found a few quotes from a cbs news article about the play in general and one from hal prince the director said he always hated when people describe the show as just about a chandelier because he says because it isn't of course and I would I would agree with that like yes it's big fun 
technical theater side of it being a techie myself love that part of it but it is a shame when people go there and the only thing they take away is that oh a giant chandelier fell from the theater into the crowd which is 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 a by all means a incredible act in itself but to see the true like love story of this play and to see the acting and just the vocal dynamics and talent that all these actors and actresses have that's what you should take away from the show along with the chandelier not just the chandelier itself that's my that's my two cents about it uh because he says the show at heart is a love story and it's something that came into a surprise even to the show's composer and writer andrew lloyd weber who along with sarah brightman recorded his recollection recollections for it and i have a few here so Weber said, I remember finding the book in New York and reading it one afternoon and thinking it's not the same as I remember. It's not a sort of funny thing with someone coming out and saying boo from behind the chandelier. It's actually about a romance. And from that same article, Sarah Bogus, one of the ladies who played Christine, said that the play, it's able to withstand the test of time because it's still current and it's still... The ultimate underdog story, which I thought was a very um, unique way of putting it, which I really like, actually. And Hugh Perano, one of the men to play the Phantom, he did over 1900 performances. And he said, I think the show touches all of us on a very deep level that transcends the beautiful score and the scenery or the costumes or the love triangle. I think it hits us on a pretty primal level, which I feel like that's one of the goals of of the show is to try to invoke that deep emotion that we are so desperately wanting to feel. So going from all the backstory stuff there and going into all of the stuff, how Phantom makes a difference fan side put one of the biggest impacts really well. So they said Phantom of the opera has an impact on musical theater because of the grandeur of the musical itself. The sweeping score appeals to old theater goers. The epic love story appeals to the masses. Adding to over-the-top theatrics, everyone has a memorable evening. And of course, this musical was during a time that everything Andrew Lloyd Webber touched turned to gold. And while Andrew Lloyd Webber has his legions of fans, this musical allows the non-traditional theater goers to feel like they're a part of the community. So, much like different plays you have today or even ones that are going to come you get this new type of musical and it changes the way Broadway works it changes how people see Broadway because you can have a kid who doesn't like like he doesn't like show tunes but then he listens to Hamilton and loves rap. And then now he's all, this is what Broadway's about. This is what Broadway is. This is a part of Broadway. I, can, I like this. I can do this. And it sets a whole new motivation for all youth and adults where they see this and they're saying, hmm, I, I like this. And they go back for more and they keep just getting hooked in by all these musicals. But speaking of... Andrew Lloyd Webber. Let's go into his little sphere of influence. Webber is known for his hits such as Phantom, 
but also Katz and the Vita. And it could be say that the composer hasn't scored a big hit in some time, such as efforts in the 2010 West End Phantom sequel called Love Never Dies, which came to Broadway, never came to Broadway. And he also tried in 2005, The Woman in White, and also tried in 2004 with Bombay Dreams. But they all kind of just fizzled out. But Weber has an astonishingly early run. He hit the ground running really quickly with all his success. Um, his 1970s musicals, including Jesus Christ Superstar, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor, Dreamcoat, Evita, and Cats, all became hits and Phantom was the biggest of them all. So it was like the cherry on top of the crown of all of his work. And it's still running on Broadway today and it's become the longest running show there in in history. Until a few years ago, it was also the highest grossing Broadway musical of all time until Disney's The Lion King surpassed it. So how has the influence of Weber's shows still being filled today? How is it still being felt? Superstar arrived as Broadway musicals based more in the rock genre were gaining popularity, and then to shows such as Superstar, Hair, Grease, all added that more modern feel to Broadway musicals that could be said to have paved the way for more current musicals like Spring Awakening and Smash Hit Hamilton and everything. Kind of like what I was saying before, this movement, this new thing coming into Broadway gave it opportunities and open doors for all these new people. In an article from the Christian Science Monitor, it says that in some ways Weber shows also cemented a certain earnestness and over-the-top aura that many still associate with Broadway musicals today because that was, Fanson came out in the mega musical era of Broadway and it still lives on with Les Mis and Cats and all the, all these mega musicals, which I'll get in a little bit as we go on. But some critics and theater goers decry, for example, the melodramatic plot of Phantom and the over-the-top songs and some of Weber's shows establish these qualities as its first characteristics people think of when you think of Broadway musicals. So going back to the more of the impact of what he was doing, changing the game, he kind of imprinted to where people associate Broadway with his songs. And I mean, it's even today, you still associate that, even though you do see people associating Broadway with Hamilton a lot and Wicked and all these other musicals, especially the new and upcoming ones, you still get this giant juggernaut of a musical. It sticks around and people latch onto that when they think Broadway. And I actually have a clip here of Weber and Cameron McIntosh. So I'll go ahead and play that now for y'all. The original musical came about in a sort of rather convoluted way, like they always do. Sarah Brightman, um, who I was just about to get married to, was asked if she would do a production of The Phantom of the Opera that was going to use uh, real opera arias by a guy called Ken Hill. And Sarah decided she didn't want to do it. And Cameron McIntosh and I went to go and see it. And to our surprise, um, and I don't mean this in any condescending way, um, we thought it was really rather good. And... We were, in fact, so taken with it, we decided to meet up with the writer and director and 
talk about us possibly bringing the show in to uh, London. We spoke to Ken about the idea and, and we, we started to develop it with him. And the more we worked with him, the more we realised that actually we weren't being able to improve his vision of it. I mean, he'd done a jolly good job and other than tarted up slightly, um, we didn't really have anything to bring to the party. Cut to sort of six months later, I'm in New York and uh, sort of moseying around one Sunday afternoon with not a lot to do, and I go into one of these book fair places, you know. There, sitting there, was a copy of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux for sort of like, you know, 50 cents or something. I mean, it really was, was something like that. I thought, well, I've got nothing to do this afternoon. I'll just buy this book and read it. And I read it, and of course, I mean, it's a confused book, to put it mildly. Can't work out what it is exactly, whether it's a love story, whether it's a detective story, uh, or whether or not it's some kind of thriller, whether or not it's some kind of piece of history that is being told. He's completely um, all over the shop with it. And we thought it was uh, a jolly good plot and rather badly written. Of course, the thing that suddenly came zinging out to me was that it had all these bits of high romance which I had absolutely no idea about. 1984, I think we were doing Starlight on Broadway, and Andrew gave me this book and said, do you think this will make a musical? And I mean, if you had to pick a subject for a musical, there are certain rules for musicals about things that they have to have in them in order to make them work, most of which are based on whether it's going to be daft when people burst into song or not because basically that's what you have to get over with an audience, is that moment when people start singing. So there has to be passion and obsession so that just words aren't enough, so that the song has to start. And The Phantom of the Opera is about one of the great obsessives in history. So that's what they had to say about it, and that's kind of what I've told you thus far, but it's finding this clip has been was really cool just to hear their interview and hear how they started it and how their journey went on with Phantom. In addition, Phantom was an important component in the 1980s popularity of the mega musical, kind of like what I was saying earlier. These productions, which included Phantom Les Mis and Miss Sagon, which opened in Broadway in 1991, I believe, are shows that all boast this many special effects and often very elaborate sets and these shows can become staples of Broadway like they have been and they run for many years with the crowd pleasers like Phantom and Les Mis and the, the familiar titles may attract Broadway visitors unfamiliar with other productions and audience members can be lured in by the promise of spectacle but that kind of that kind of was that era and in its own right was very important um but as the shows have moved on and how especially these mega musicals as they've gone on they've diversified they've become more modern and one of those instances was with when norm lewis started playing phantom and it was he has an amazing voice i really like him as an actor but i'll let you listen to a few clips that i found on YouTube and see what you think for yourself. What a voice. 
face. That is the man changing the face of Phantom of the Opera as it celebrates more than a quarter century on Broadway. That's well over 11,000 performances. Wow. Jamie Wax went behind the scenes to learn how this legendary musical stays so fresh. Jamie, good morning. Good morning, Gail. Yes, that issue of staying fresh can be a challenge for any long-running show. But the latest Phantom actor, Norm Lewis, made history when he took the stage in the title role. And it's safe to say that he has brought with him a different perspective to the man behind the mask. It's hours before curtain. Hey, Hi. Gilmore. How are you? And actor Norm Lewis is in makeup, preparing for his landmark debut as Broadway's Phantom of the Opera. Slowly, gently. Night unfurls its splendor, grasp it. This moment would be very emotional for any actor about to tackle such an iconic role. Right. But for you and for what this represents as an actor of color, mm -hmm. uh, is it more emotional? I think it is. I mean, I feel very honored and I, and I hope that I make not only uh, everyone who's involved proud, uh, hopefully this will open up a lot of doors for people of color. And listen to the music of the night. Close your eyes. It's been a long and unlikely road for Lewis, a lanky kid from Florida with a big voice. I was going to work in the business world, probably advertising. And what was it? What was the experience that, that turned you from business to show business? Well, funny enough, I was entering a lot of different contests in Orlando singing contests and this one particular one that I won there was a judge in the audience and he was a producer for a cruise ship and he came up to me afterwards and said how would you like to sing on my cruise so I thought about it and I talked to my supervisor at work and she said you don't want to be 85 saying coulda woulda shoulda go for it try it if it doesn't work out at least you tried and you can always come back to what you love good advice yeah yeah and I'm not I didn't go back <laughs> <laughs> Instead, he went forward. Lewis landed his first Broadway show as part of the ensemble in The Who's Tommy in 1993. From there, he progressed, eventually landing starring roles in The Little Mermaid and Porgy and Bess. Which got him a Tony nomination and put him center stage. And you might recognize him as Senator Edison Davis on TV's Scandal. I'm a very lucky man. Lewis himself admits that he has indeed been lucky. Still, he says, some leading roles have been hard to reach for actors of color. Is the world of acting, particularly if you are a guy who looks like a leading man, mm -hmm. more difficult for an actor of color? Yes. Yeah, blatantly and point blank, yes. Even the Phantom of the Opera, which does not come with a description of race, has traditionally gone to white actors. Though Robert Guillaume played the role in a 1990 Los Angeles production, of the now 14 actors to be cast as the Phantom on Broadway over its 26-year run, Lewis is the only African-American. He's a brilliant actor and a brilliant performer and a brilliant singer. Musical theater legend Andrew Lloyd Webber created the character for the stage. He says it is an actor's presence, not color, 
that is important to the role. One quality that you, you have to have, which is total charisma on stage, because, because you're behind a mask, you know, the authority, I think is possibly a better word, you have to have that authority to really bring the role off. While Lewis embraces the historical significance of being Broadway's first black phantom, he is at heart an actor and performer, one who has landed the role of a lifetime. <laughs> I know it's cliche to say, but it's beyond my wildest dreams. You know, when I walked out at the end and just the applause and the ovation that we were getting, I wanted to cry. So that was a clip from CBS News and just gave you kind of a little insight on who he is and what he does with Phantom. And now I have another clip that is also about the same thing, but it also includes Sierra Bogus and Andrew Lloyd Webber as well, talking about how his impact is amazing and how wonderful of an actor he actually is. So here you go. Norm Lewis is set to make history tonight as Broadway's first African-American Phantom of the Opera. We're headed to the Majestic Theater for his opening night to talk to the Tony nominee, his good friend and leading lady, Sierra Bogus, and the maestro himself, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh my God, how are you feeling tonight? Uh, I mean, amazing, sweaty, elated. It's like, it was, it felt like we just opened a show. It's nice to feel after 26 years, like people still want to see it. They love, I mean, they freaked out tonight. I remember the opening night in this theater so well. And I don't think I ever thought it would be equaled. And in many ways, I think this was maybe, maybe just that one yard better. But of course, you see, unfortunately, I was married to the leading lady at the time. And uh, I maybe didn't quite enjoy it as much as I would have done if I wasn't very nervous for her. I'm too old to propose to Sierra, but otherwise I would. <laughs> oh my God, Norm, how are you feeling? I'm feeling uh, over the moon, over the moon. And you know, the last time we talked, uh, or I think one of the last times we talked was last year, and because uh, I, I went back and, and looked at that, I was self-indulgent, looked at myself on you <laughs> being interviewed by you, and I said this. You said this is my dream, to be in Phantom. Yeah. Norm Lewis made it very clear to a lot of reporters ahead of time, this was his dream role. So did you know that, and do you like to make these dreams come true for people? Well, I didn't know that, but I mean, in a way, I would like to put it the other way around. It's a great dream for me to have somebody of his quality in the lead role. Of course, we all know, we first saw you together under the sea, father and daughter in Disney, Disney World. Um, so what's it like being sexy together and exploring this dynamic? Awesome. Have you seen him, even in the makeup? Hot. Look at you, now you're in the mask, you're shooting fireballs, you're dropping that chandelier. How does it feel to actually be doing it? It's awesome. I was just nervous and I wanted to make sure I was in the right spot, but I felt their energy, the people who have been here, who have been the phantoms, who have I seen, and you know, my friend Hugh Panero left his energy here. So I, I just hope that I've absorbed all of that and, and I can bring it you know, for this, my full run. The first time that I even heard his singing voice tonight when he says Christine, Christine, um, or Bravi, Bravi, and I was just like, oh my God, it's normal. I'm, I can't wait to see him. That's how I felt like on stage. And, um, and also just going on the journey, the, the journey where we go down to the lair and just, I mean, we get to 
be a part of each other's show from the beginning. To have that title of first African-American, I really appreciate that. And I really hope that I make whoever proud and uh, they can, this can open doors for other people of color, so. So getting to hear him on that opening note was really something neat to see and find when I was doing all this research. And it just shows how even with such a, not an old, but such a classic play and one that's been done for years and years and years, how they're still putting this fresh spin on it and how they're putting this modern feel into it and making it sound amazing and the performance just be amazing and not yet change the show but in a way change it completely if you understand what I'm saying it's a great show if y'all haven't watched this show and it comes to your town buy tickets it's phenomenal it's you'll become out very pleased and very entertained but with that that is all the research I have for today and so we'll take a quick ad break and we'll see you in a minute welcome back so moving on to our next segment of picking your favorite character. I don't have my guest today to ask what their favorite character is, but I can tell you mine most definitely. My favorite character in this play, and it's very cliche, would have to be the Phantom. Just because that no matter who plays him, the voice and the range that they cast out for this is always phenomenal. And... Just the way the music's composed to give him the highlights and the spotlight is just amazing. I love hearing every song with him in it and just feeling what he's going through and just being there in the moment with him. If y'all have a favorite character, I don't have a guest today, like I said, but if y'all have a favorite character, shout it out. On the Instagram, on the Twitter, on the Facebook, or you can email me and I might mention it in a future episode. But if you have a favorite character, let me know and we can maybe do some stuff with it and have some fun. Yeah. But with that, that's pretty much all I have with Phantom. I just really love the voice and the, the composition they put him in the play. Um, but with that, we'll go ahead and move on with our next segment which are songs of the week. So same thing with like the character. If y'all have songs y'all want to suggest for me to listen to, I love music. I'm a huge music nerd. So if you have songs you want to suggest to me, email them, DM them, message me, and I'll take a listen to them, honestly. And if I like them and I really groove to them, I might even recommend it on the podcast. So my songs of the week this week for... First, the Broadway song is I Know Where I've Been from Hairspray. There's a cry asking why I pray the answer's up ahead Cause I know where I've been There's a road we've been traveling Lost so many I chose this song today just because, one, it's a great song. The musical's great. I'm going to do an episode on it in the future. But I was thinking 
I was like, Phantom, his voice is so rich and full during this play, and it has to be to give that authority to him, like they were saying earlier in the videos. And I was thinking, what other song can compare to that? And I thought of this song, and it's been done many a time from the original cast to Queen Latifah and even live on NBC. And it's always done phenomenally, and it's just so rich, and that's why I love it. And it's also very meaningful when you listen to the lyrics, no matter what situation you may find yourself in. So that's my Broadway song of the week. Now, my non-Broadway song of the week is going to be Dangerous by Royal Deluxe. I really like the song in general. It's very good pump song. I have it in my get pumped walkout song playlist on Spotify. And it always gets me pumped and it always gets me going. And off topic from Broadway, but I'm a giant Marvel nerd. And me being a Marvel nerd, I decided to make a little montage in my free time. And I put it to this song of just action scenes. And it's a lot. It's a really fun song and I love it. If y'all guys want to talk about Marvel sometime, always hit me up. Always free to talk about it. Always interested. But with that, that really is about the end of our show today. And I thank you for coming and listening today. I know it was kind of a short episode and I'm sorry. This was all kind of done last minute um, with the recording since I didn't have a guest. So I hope you still like it. I hope you stick around for next episode in two weeks. If you want to hit me up, you can follow me at Power the Playbill on Instagram and Facebook and Power OT Playbill on Twitter. Free fill to DM me, message me. You can go to the website, powertheplaybill.wixsite.com slash POTP, and you'll find all you can there. You'll be able to hear all the episodes. You'll be able to have direct links to all the social media accounts as well as the Patreon account, which I would love if y'all would go there and help me out because keeping this going is going to, I'm going to need your help in the long run. So if you want to help us out and keep this podcast going, go over there and hit the Patreon page and become a patron. And there's all sorts of cool benefits with that, such as access to my scripts, complete uncut audio you can get once if it keeps blowing up maybe i put some merch in there i know if you're a certain tier i put that we'll do a monthly q a sesh in it and if you're a producer which is ten dollars or more a month then at the end of each episode your name will be such and such produced by such and such and that looks really good on a resume like i said in the intro but we also have if you just don't have a ton of money and just want to help support any every penny counts and I will thank you for every penny you give me <laughs> um when you sign up for the lowest tier you will automatically get a shout out at the beginning of the show like you heard today but I just wanted to thank all of y'all for listening 
it is truly amazing seeing all the listens on the website and seeing how even though this is the second episode already seeing some results from all the hard work going into this it truly means a lot i hope you all stick around in two weeks the episode will be longer i promise um but for now that's it so i hope you all guys have a great day morning afternoon evening night whatever time it is you listen to it and i hope you have a great week and break a leg guys Power of the Playbill is created, hosted, and edited by Brayden Hinsalka and produced by Brayden Hinsalka and Mary Stevenson. If y'all guys want to hit us up on social media, follow Power of the Playbill on Instagram and Facebook and Power OT Playbill on Twitter. If y'all guys want to see all the cool things on the website, head on over to powerofthepleybill.wixsite.com slash POTP. Thanks for listening, guys, and break a leg.